You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Our text this morning, this third Sunday of Advent, is the story of the wise men's journey to Bethlehem found in Matthew's gospel, which is actually the only gospel that includes this interesting story. The wise men, or the magi, as they are also known, we also call them three kings, but they weren't kings. (laughs) Uh, Tradition holds, and I put it as tradition because we really don't know the historical fact, but tradition holds that these men And there wasn't just three of them, by the way. That whole idea that there's three only comes from the fact that, or the story that there was three gifts presented, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, But we don't, it doesn't actually say there was only three, another interesting fact. But the Magi, the wise men, tradition holds, were Persian astrologers, practitioners, actually priests within this religion called Zoroastrianism which was the principal religion of Persia at that time, and remarkably shares a lot in common with Judaism and Christianity, that aside for now. But these these priests, these Zoroastrian priests, um, were astrologers. They focused on studying the stars. And back then, astrology was basically like astronomy. It wasn't this kind of... um, pseudo. It wasn't viewed as pseudoscience like it is now. And these men studied the stars to not just understand what time of year it was or what the seasons were, but their belief was that the stars contained messages from the divine, from the gods. Um, You could interpret the stars to know when important people were born or or died. We're told that upon Caesar's death, uh, there was a star, there was a comet, right? Um, These kinds of ideas, right? Um, again, the stars were understood as containing messages from the gods, and it wasn't just Zoroastrian priests who believed this. Practically everybody did in the ancient world, which is why we find this story of the Bethlehem star in Matthew's gospel. And with that in mind, I'll read just a short excerpt now from Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It reads, The wise men set out, and there ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped. It was moving. The star stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. When I was a teenager, and a young adult, I used to go every summer to my family's farm in upstate New York, just south of Rochester, farm that's been in my family since the 1850s. And it's out in a rural location. So when I'd be camping out there, the stars at night were amazing. A lot better than the stars I saw growing up in rural Chicago, or I'm sorry, suburban Chicagoland because of all the light pollution. So I used to love to, when I'd go camping up there, to stargaze at night, and routinely I would watch satellites traverse the night sky. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, seen a satellite before, but they look just like a regular star that's moving across the sky 
at a relatively slow speed, even though they're going many thousands of miles an hour up there, right? They're going probably, you know, at arm's length, maybe a, a few inches a second. It takes maybe 30 seconds for them to go across the sky. So they're really noticeable. And they're really distinct from, let's say, a plane, helicopter, or a drone, um, because there's no flashing FAA lights. You know, it's just like a star. And uh, it, they're also just easily distinguished from shooting stars, right? Because shooting stars, you know, shoot across the sky in like a split second. So one night, approximately 30 years ago, a long time ago, when I was up at the farm stargazing, I was watching this one satellite go across the sky. And as it got directly overhead, it just stopped. Just stopped. And I remember feeling quite surprised. I'd seen many satellites before. And I, I was there with my cousin, Kathy, and I said to her, it stopped. And I looked down to see if she was looking up too, but she wasn't. She was doing something else. But then she looked back up with me and we tried to find it, but we couldn't because, of course, it was camouflage now. It just blended in with the rest of all the stationary stars in, in the sky, right? And, uh, you know, I was quite taken aback because I knew that in order for a satellite to stay in orbit, it can't stop. It's going many thousands of miles an hour, approximately 15,000 miles an hour, I think, is a common speed for satellites in orbit. And they have to maintain that speed or they literally fall back to Earth. They can't stop. And so I was quite taken aback. Um, <laughs> now, why do I share this with you? It's not a very good UFO story as far as UFO stories go. Others have more compelling, more interesting stories than that. But I share it because I found it unsettling. Here I am 30 years later, and I can vividly remember the experience. I can vividly remember where I was standing next to the cabin on the farm, who I was with, what I was feeling, what I said. I've thought about it a lot over the years. I mean, just off and on, it pops back into my head, that, that weird moment. Um, these kind of experiences are like that. They're unsettling. They're disruptive. They're destabilizing. We would say maybe even a little deconstructive. They have the power to change our outlook on the world and open our minds to the possibility of something new, something strange. To be clear, I am not trying to do an ancient aliens thing here this morning, <laughs> okay, or suggest that the Bethlehem star was an alien craft or what I saw was. Just set that aside. Please don't hear that. I'm simply saying that the nativity story, like a lot of stories in human history about strange lights in the sky, contact with strange beings from other worlds, think of the angels coming down out of the sky and visiting the shepherds scaring the hell out of them in Luke's nativity story. These experiences and stories are common throughout history, and they almost always have an unsettling effect, a destabilizing effect. They subvert our expectations about, about the world. They create a break where a new understanding of reality is made possible. I think this is part of what the nativity story is about, too. It's meant to unsettle us. It's meant to create a break where, new, where a new understanding of God, ourselves, and the world is made possible. You know, we think of Halloween as being the holiday for spooky stories that unsettle us, right? But actually, Christmas is a time for 
ghost stories too, stories that spook, stories that unsettle. And it's not just the Gospels that contain those stories, but even Christmas classics like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, right? What's that story about? Ebenezer Scrooge is visited in the middle of the night by three apparitions, three ghosts that terrorize him, right? That disturb him. And this paranormal experience so disturbs him that he completely changes. He goes from being this selfish, greedy guy to a kind and generous man. He gets a whole new outlook on life and goes, you know, goes from one thing to another. He, th this is what mystical and paranormal experiences often do to us. They change our outlook on the world and thereby change us, sometimes even dramatically. I think on some level, this is what the nativity story is about, too. It's a spooky story meant to disturb and deconstruct our definitions of reality, our definitions of ourselves, who we are, who God is, so that a new understanding may be born into the world. Think of it. The nativity story is about strange lights in the sky, luminous beings coming down, visiting with people and scaring the hell out of them. The Christ child himself, we're told, is a being from another realm, another world, who has come into this one to inaugurate a new age, the kingdom of God, as it were. The nativity story shares a lot in common with what we call today a contact story or a close encounter. I love how Diana Pasalka puts it. She is the chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Carolina, so not just some random person. She says this, the history of religion is, among other things, a record of perceived contact with supernatural beings, many of which descend from the skies as beings of light or amid light, the modern experience of the UFO or alien coming down from the sky can be compared to the ancient experience of angels or the gods descending from the heavens. Lots of shining aerial phenomena, luminous beings, and transformed lives. End quote. I love that. Again, I point this out not to argue that the Bethlehem star was really an alien craft but rather that such stories have always been part of the human experience. And such stories, such experiences, have always had an unsettling and deconstructive effect. And a reconstructive effect, if I may. They challenge our preconceptions and our worldview and open us up to the possibility of something new. Something radically new. The nativity story is no exception to this, and it does so on many levels. Consider how Matthew's, Matthew's nativity story, Matthew's gospel, but Matthew's nativity story opens up with Jesus's genealogy, tracing his roots all the way back to Abraham. But along the way, Matthew mentions five women, and only five women. I've mentioned this before, you may remember. Who are those five women? Well, they're Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Why does he mention only those five? These are controversial women, women of questionable purity, according to the Hebrew tradition. Two of the five women, Tamar and Rahab, were told are sex workers, prostitutes. Rahab and Ruth were not even Jews or Israelites, but one was a Moabite and the other a Canaanite. Cursed nations, according to the Hebrew traditions. Nations you are not supposed to intermarry with, according to Torah. Bathsheba, by no fault of her own, is in a sinful marriage with David. And Mary was an unwed pregnant teenager. All five women were considered to be women of questionable purity. And yet all of them are, not despite this, but because of it, righteous and heroic figures and the mothers of Jesus, no less. What does this mean? I think their presence in the nativity story of Matthew's gospel was intended to have an unsettling effect, a, a disruptive effect, a deconstructive effect. It was meant to challenge first century Jewish conceptions of God and how God worked in the world. These women represent religion's inability in general, not just Judaism's inability, but religion's inability in general to define God or control God. These women deconstruct any notion that God has to play by certain rules, is bound by man's traditions. These women deconstruct our definitions of orthodoxy, holiness, and purity. And yet they were Jesus's ancestors, part of his own bloodline. And because so, they represent how God himself, herself, their self challenges our definitions of orthodoxy, holiness, purity. The God revealed in Jesus defied the religious imagination of, of his day. From the moment he was born, he did this. He broke their presuppositions about who God was, how the world worked, etc. Therefore, to be a follower of this Jesus, to be a Christian, it seems to me, means to be someone who embraces the strange, the unsettling, all these ways that God comes to us and works in the world. It means to be someone who is open to the new and the unexpected. It means to be someone who is open to all those things as a way of embracing God herself, himself. This strikes me as part of what it means to join the Magi and the shepherds in the manger and to bear witness with them to this new, this unexpected, and this strange event, this strange, unexpected new thing God was doing in the world. You know, today, uh, today's Advent theme is joy, right? And one of the big questions I think we're faced with here in a community like this one is the question, how can we find joy in our religion again? How can we find joy in our faith and spirituality again? How can we still find life in it or joy in it? For me, part of that joy is found in the embrace of the utter strangeness of the world 
And in the utter strangeness of God, the sacred, the divine, the transcendent, whatever you want to call it. God, I believe, is more often revealed in the so-called strange, the so-called paranormal things, the, the unnormal things, the unsettling things, the surprising things, the unknown things, rather than in the so-called normal and known things. You know, the fact is the world is a really strange place. Life and consciousness is really strange. <laughs> why, why shouldn't we think of God? Whatever we call, want to call it. Why, don't, why shouldn't we think of God as really strange and mysterious too? And I, and I think that strangeness and mysteriousness is not just deconstructive, but reconstructive. Because if we embrace the strange, embrace the mysterious and the unknown, rather than run from it in fear, I think we find wonder and awe. And I think there's something inherently spiritually enriching about wonder and awe and the embrace of the unknown and the strangeness of life. I think wonder and awe is the basis for a sense of transcendence, a sense of being connected to something much bigger than ourselves that we can't put our finger on, that we can't define, that's esoteric and ineffable, we would say. I think that's the, the foundation for a deep, a deep sense of spiritual vitality. It's reconstructive. Mystery and unknowing, wonder and awe are the foundation for the deepest and most abiding sense of spiritual vitality. And I'm speaking from personal experience here. I want to cultivate those, those feelings, those experiences in my own personal life and here in this community. I want to cultivate awe and wonder because I think that's the depth dimension of a sense of spiritual vitality and abiding in, in a sense you know, indestructible, indeconstructible, non-undeconstructible, un, I think, awe and wonder is mystery, a sense of transcendence. So let's be open to the so-called strange. Let's be open to the mystical, the unknown, and thereby be open to and welcome the Christ child who came to us in the most unexpected way. Nobody saw it coming, not like that born in the middle of the night in a manger to some peasant nobodies from the backwaters of the world. Let's not do, lose touch with the strangeness and the unexpectedness of that. It's a story about strange lights in the sky, luminous beings, strange beings coming down and transformed lives as a result. It's about all that. Let's, let's not lose touch with the strangeness of it. We too easily domesticate it, make it, you know, norm, we normalize it. It's not normal. <laughs> Nothing about that story is normal. Nothing about life in the world is normal. If you're open, let's see this story as an invitation to be open to the strange and the unexpected. And I think by doing so, we will find a deep and abiding sense of spiritual vitality and a deeper joy, if I may, in our, in our spiritual traditions, in our faith and spirituality. As we receive the Lord's Supper here this morning, 
let's not forget the strangeness of this too, <laughs> if you will. You know, Jesus told us, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. What a strange thing to say. What a strange tradition, a mystical tradition, to eat the flesh and drink the blood of God and to thereby be his people in the world. There's a lot going on there. I encourage you to meditate on what that means for you or just embrace the mystery of it. That's cool too. Let's do that this morning as Max and Emily lead us in song. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. guys. So, uh, any questions, comments? Um, anybody want to share any weird experiences they've ever had? Any paranormal experiences? Any UFO sightings out there? Yeah. Uh, but anybody have any questions or comments about anything we talked about today? Yeah. Um, I see Emily and Anne. Um, where's another? Oh, here it is. There you are. Um, I had two things pop up as you were. Yeah, hold up the mic as close to your. There you go. That better. Yeah, perfect. Um, I had two things pop up as you were talking. You you said undeconstructible. Um, it made me think about how, like, when I thought I had so much certainty in my belief, that was a much more fragile faith because it could be deconstructed because I had constructed something. Yeah. But now that my faith is more fluid, it's more, there's a lot more questions and uncertainty and I don't have to know, then everything new I learn can get absorbed into that instead of it being a threat, um, which, you know, is just like all these new things that I, as I thought I was losing everything, in fact, I'm not. It's yeah. an interesting. Uh, interesting thing um oh shoot it can come back to you it'll come back we can come back to you you can come back <laughs> very cool yeah emily thanks ann um now i forgot mine um no i <laughs> i was gonna say the whole paranormal thing like legit we were me diana and my mom were out on our balcony in burbank and we went outside to ring in the new year it was midnight so we went out on the balcony and i just happened to look up and we all happened to look up and there were just lights and they were just sort of probably five or six of them um i was like okay nothing that i know of moves like that that can be that high up and so that, and then they just, one by one, they just disappeared as they were moving. And I just thought, okay, well, that's interesting. That's called unexplained there. Mm -hmm. um, so me, my mom and Diana dress in our onesies every year and go stand outside at midnight and look for aliens. So 
<laughs> haven't seen them since but yeah. um but to what you were saying i did remember is um i think i now am more okay with the not knowing things mm. because i'm allowed to ask questions and i'm allowed to doubt things and we're allowed to have conversations rather than what was before they were like if you believe or think that or doubt or ask questions of anything that we're saying which is so egotistical in the first place anyway yeah then you are now opening yourself up to evil and you know things to penetrate your soul and blah 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 and now something's wrong with you because you just don't believe stuff that you're which then makes me realize that christians especially hardcore in, deep in their christianity are very impressionable i mean yeah. they they're because they're not allowed to ask questions they end up believing things without any sense being needing to be made about what it is that they believe about this world mm. um and it's all just very confusing because if you want to have a conversation with those people and go wait a minute but but what about this they go oh no 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 not it's not about that it's just about this and you're like but you can't have this without that so i don't understand so there's just there's no logical explanation but i i do feel better about the uncertainty because i am allowed to ask questions and have conversations and doubts it's yeah i think that's a normal human thing you know yeah no Did good stuff oh good <laughs> excellent so does that mean everything we said before is you, not recorded pretty much Whew. Sorry, right, I can I can re-record it. <laughs> um, she's an Episcopal priest. She left the ministry to become a professor, and she taught comparative religions. Mm -hmm. And so, in a small town in North Carolina, small college, so they would go. They would go to Atlanta. So she must have been in Georgia, and um, she would take her students on field trips to a mosque or a Hindu temple or to illustrate what she's teaching them. And her, the premise of her book is that when she kind of let go of the exclusivity of Christianity and she was able to see the beauty in other faiths, how that um, enriched her own faith. At first she thought she was losing her faith because we're taught you know, from those traditions that you have to hold on to it so tightly. So she thought she was losing it. And this comes back from your comment on um, joy being brought into our faith through the mystery that we now under yes. that we now understand. We understand it exists. We don't understand it. So it was kind of, and it was really um, fascinating for me in this book because I struggled with that as I think probably most of us have over our deconstruction where I'm losing so much um, and so much of my identity gets lost in that and how to continue to have any um, connection or joy in my faith if I don't believe it so exclusively and with so much certainty where it's just another idea but her her point especially towards the end of the book is that instead of her like taking pieces of everybody else's faith and trying to incorporate it into her own right. it made her be able to look at her own faith and 
have an appreciation for it in the light of these other faiths. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, Pete Rollins talks about um, how there's like five ways that we respond to the other, like a, like another faith. Um, we tend to react by, he calls it vomit, consume, tolerate, agree, and see. See being the, the best way to do it, but I'll just go through real quick just for your sake, I guess. But um, the first way we might respond is we, we want to, uh, if when we encounter somebody with a different view, we often react by, you know, we, we can't integrate their difference into our social bodies. We want to vomit them out, get them, get them away from us, right? Or uh, we might respond by, okay, I'll tolerate you as long as you keep your beliefs to yourself, you know what I mean, and don't try to convert me. Or, um, oh, or we might try to consume them. We might convert them, make them like us to do away with their domesticate. We want to control, want to consume them, right? Yeah, let me use that. Um, Right. So you got vomit and consume, and then we might tolerate or we might do like an interfaith dialogue where we learn to find some common ground and like, oh, we we agree. Right. And all four of those models, I'm right. Right. I don't have to confront my own contingency um, or the weirdness or the strangeness of my beliefs. Right. The other oh, their beliefs are kind of weird, but we kind of agree on some things or whatever. The best way to do it, as you just described, as Barbara Brown Taylor does, learn to see ourselves through their eyes and learn to see maybe how our beliefs, our, our tradition is kind of strange, kind of bizarre to them, right? And, and maybe understand how it's contingent, historical, and, you know, comes from a culture, you know, and being able to see that, look, see ourselves through the eyes of the other is a wonderful gift. And yeah, it's deconstructive. And Leanne, I love how you talk about how falling is flying. And that's been an important insight or metaphor for your spiritual journey. You know, it's really scary to take that step off the cliff into the unknown, right? To go into deconstruction and, you know, take that first step into the, into oblivion. And, but what's wonderful is you learn that the, the experience of falling, you go from that terror into learning, oh, I can actually fly, but you have to like, you know, like a little bird, like take that first step of courage into the unknown and learn that you can actually fly. But at first, yeah, it's it's falling and you're going out into the unknown. And yeah, falling is falling is flying, right? And that's kind of our experience here to embrace uncertainty, to embrace deconstruction, to embrace the utter strangeness of this thing we call the human experience. At first it's terrifying, but it's but it's really a way of flying. We can fly. We can fly. And that's, I think, kind of the the basis of I think a lot of our faith now. We've learned that we can fly you know? Um, but yeah, good stuff. Anybody else? Yeah, Leanne. Yeah, the, the quote that ushered that and for me was, um, I was at a, like a yogic workshop, and the leader said, the bad news is you're free falling. The good news is there is no ground. Um, and I just love that. Um, but I love this idea of looking at the nativity scene differently because I think there's a certain coziness and familiarity to Christmas, which I think has its place and is wonderful. But I think like if we make it like super cozy, I think we do domesticate it and we don't see, I think it's what we've kind of tend to do with the whole Jesus story is domesticate it and make it like cozy. And I don't know, like 
things had to happen this way and this is how it is. And you kind of like, I don't know, and make it to this monolith of a story where there's so many weird twists and turns and things where I just think it's important to have that like kind of alienation effect from this and look back at it and be like, if I was someone who had never heard the story before, never put a Christmas tree in my living room before, or a tree in my living room before, like for a month every year, like it's so weird. So I think it is like really valuable to kind of take a step back and be like, what if I had lived in a bomb shelter, like blast in the past, Brendan Fraser coming back into the cultural for, um, but just like, and then escaped and then saw all this, like, what would I make of it? And I think it's important to, to look at the stories this way, um, or they become so familiar, they kind of lose their impact. Good stuff. Thanks for that. Anybody else? All right. Well, no picnic today. A little soggy out there, but uh, thanks for being here. And um, yeah, look forward to seeing you next week. Um, just another word of reminder, no service on Christmas Day or New Year's Day this year or next year, I guess we would say as well. Um, but yeah, thanks for being here, everybody. Go in peace. Oh, you know what? We always do our benediction. I forgot the benediction. Bobo, can we put that? I know, I know. Love this thing. Let's do this together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. All right, now, now we're done. <laughs> go in peace, everybody. Thank you.